9. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haaraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh. Yahweh swore to them that he would not let them see the land that Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Firstly, <clears throat> we'll begin with um, the response of the Amorites and the Canaanites. Now, it's clear in the text that they had this intense fear. It's, their hearts melted away and there's no longer any spirit in them. It's like, saying that they had no will to live at that point um, because once they realized that God was behind this troop, um, this nation crossing over the Great Jordan River to their land, they knew that they were going to be in trouble. Now, here's the thing. You might think that this might cause them, if they're so afraid, to think, all right, I, we, should do, we should try and maybe make peace with them, right? Uh, maybe uh, we should repent of following our gods, and since their god seems so much better, uh, maybe we should try to make peace with not just them, but their god as well. And, and actually, you will see later in the book of Joshua, we'll get to the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites, <clears throat> they're actually going to trick Israel into peace. But you would think Something along those lines. If you're intensely afraid uh, of this uh, coming army, you would maybe try to negotiate something. And uh, for the most part, none of these pagan nations repent or try to negotiate with the Israelites. And we are getting closer to the passages in Joshua that talk about the total destruction of these nations. And they are a little bit of a stumbling block because it says even the women and the children were to be killed by the Israelites. And oftentimes people will point out, well, how merciful and just is God if he's telling the Israelites to kill all these kids too? I mean, what did they do wrong? So we'll have a fuller discussion of that when we get there. But understand that these nations, they did have an opportunity to show some humility and repent or otherwise try to reach out to the Israelites uh, and at least make some attempt at peace, but they don't. They double down. Um, despite their intense fear and despite having almost no like will in them to fight, imagine that... <laughs> Just imagine the stubbornness and the hard-heartedness to say, but we're not going to stop a single thing that we're doing. God is judging these nations. That's one of the answers to the question of why. How could he just wipe out all of these people? Well, understand this is a nation under judgment, and this is something, uh, as far as the children are concerned, in a way, one of the answers to that is that the adults, the parents, did this to themselves. They could have averted this, but... In a way, God also knew that these nations were not going to repent. Again, we'll get there. So the fact that they don't uh, repent, that they don't humble themselves, like, say, 
um, <clears throat> Nineveh at the time of Jonah, it tells you they were hard-hearted, they were stubborn, that no matter how much fear of death was upon them, it wasn't enough to get them to humble their hearts and change. Now, it's easy to kind of like, yeah, those guys are so, you know, foolish and ignorant, but hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> this is human nature. This is also you and me. <laughs> In fact, this is something that happens so frequently throughout Israel's history. The whole thing is, is almost like a parable of, of each one of us. I mean, don't tell me that there are not times you, knowing full well the consequences of sin, knowing full well that Jesus Christ had to die for them, that you pursued a sin, <laughs> that you made a choice that was, strictly speaking, for yourself that went against God's command. So let's not sit here and cast all these judgments on the Amorites and Canaanites, all oh, those pagan nations. How could they, in the fear, uh, having this fear of God, still choose to sin. Well, come on. You, you haven't been there too? Let us understand with some humility that this is the, exactly the human condition, that we can understand and know that God must bring judgment upon sin and still at times choose sin in our own hearts. So let's read this and have like a little bit of, of humility uh, and understanding. Let's make ourselves the Amorites and the Canaanites and not the Israelites because, hey, even the Israelites are going to screw up in some profound ways, even in the context of Joshua. Now, the rest of this chapter, it deals with the preparations for the conquest of the promised land. Now, when we use terms like conquest, we think of war, and there is certainly going to be battles and, and things like that in this book. But we're going to see over and over again in Joshua even in the time of Judges, even the time of Samuel and, and Kings, that what mattered most as far as the people of Israel, <clears throat> both conquering the land and then staying in the land, is not going to be their battle readiness. It's not that they have an army that is superior to every other army, that they were in constant training exercises and war games, to prepare for war at the drop of a hat. The book of Joshua, as a book of conquest, it is clear that the most important factor in the Israelites' military success was their spiritual condition. They needed to be ready spiritually, both individually, each person, and as a community. And then the last thing we'll see is that as a as a spiritually prepared individual, as a part of a spiritually prepared community, they need to submit to the spiritual commander that they served under the Lord himself. And so we're probably just going to get through, <clears throat> we'll call it the personal side of spiritual readiness um, here in this section between verses 2 through 9. Now, again, somewhat of an awkward discussion because we're going to talk a lot about circumcision today. You can't avoid it when you have literally a, a hill here called, um, you know, they're doing you a favor when they put Gibeah Ha'araloth because that means hill of the foreskins. So the Bible is not trying to shy away from what is uh, happening here. Um, you know, the, the imagery here is, is, is one that you cannot just sort of gloss over, okay? So uh, we're going to go into it. I'm going to try and make it as, as not awkward as possible. Um, I'm going to try to avoid puns because <laughs> I, <laughs> I almost put in my notes in one part, you know, you know when, you, when you cut right down to it, I'm like, no, don't say that. <laughs> you, know, you know, cutting to the chase, all that, you <laughs> don't do that, all right? <laughs> okay. So I want to get that out of my system now, maybe. Okay. Because this is an important discussion, um, and, and we'll see why it's important. I hope by the end of this, um, the issue of circumcision won't be one that is, you know, let's be honest, somewhat awkward, but it might be one that also turns us towards the Lord. So let's go to Genesis 17, where this is first mentioned as a practice. Now, Genesis 17, <clears throat> you have... At the beginning of it, a reiteration to Abraham of the Abrahamic covenant. That is the special 
promise that God had given to this one man out of all the men and all the nations of the world, God had spoken to Abraham and promised to bless him. Promised to bless him, his name, promised to bless his family, that all the families of the world would be blessed in him, that he would have a great multitude that would come from uh, his seed to be uh, a nation in a land. And, and here you really do have the, the beginning of the promise that goes with that promised land that is full of the promised people and will one day produce a promised seed who will bless the entire world. So he gives this covenant, reiterates it to him, and then he says this, <clears throat> starting in verse 9. Genesis 17, 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, of all the signs and symbols that could have been used to identify this very critical I mean, the Abrahamic covenant is, is so basic, so critical to the storyline of God's plan of redemption. God makes it very, very clear that circumcision is the sign of being a part of the Abrahamic covenant. And he wanted it to be a sign that was in their flesh, that was something that you, you know, that, that, that cost you something of your flesh. And generally speaking, the Bible sort of condemns self-mutilation and torture, but um, this is not self-mutilation. And I'm not going to get into, let's say, today, um, there's a, a lot of movements and things about, you know, circumcision. This is, you know, wrong to do to a child. This is a mutilation, all these things. I, I'm going to try and strictly just speak about it as the Bible speaks about it without trying to advocate, well, we should still do this, we shouldn't do this, what should you do with your child we can talk about that if you want after this, but we're just going to, um, pretty strictly speaking, looking at its importance, um, because what you don't get around is the fact that God ordained circumcision as the sign of the covenant, uh, something where um, it, it, was, it was something that, 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 that took from you, cost even your, your flesh of your own body, let's say. <clears throat> now... Um, <laughs> There's a lot of reasons, I think, although he doesn't, God doesn't explicitly say why this, except that it's in your flesh. Um, I, I'm going to just give a few maybe observations that theologians make about, well, why, why this one? I mean, why not, um, you know, a, a piece of your ear, for example, or, you know, why, why not, you know, you're, you don't really need all of your toes. You got 10 of them. Why not just clip a toe or, you know, something like that? Why, why the foreskin? Um, well, it is a, you know, it is surgery on the part of the body related to reproduction. So, so of course, some theologian will say, and this tells us that the, the covenant was to be passed on throughout your generations. And so it's kind of an obvious picture if it's, you know, surgery down there, that this has to do with reproduction, that this is supposed to be something, a promise that is passed down from child to child all the way down and uh, it was something that kind of, um, by way of an illustration, demonstrates that this is for generations. Uh, others have also suggested or added to that um, that, you know, this would have also made it very obvious to non-Jewish women that a man is Jewish and hopefully would have served as sort of a practical deterrent for Jewish men not to... Um, not to uh, intermix with and intermarry with non-Jewish women because non-Jewish women would know, you know, 
you are not, you're Jewish, aren't you, right, because of this. And so to perhaps um, be a, uh, a way to naturally kind of deter intermixing and, and sort of um, muddying the promise of God that he gave specifically to Abraham and to um, those who belong to the covenant. So there is that facet or fact as well. Uh, either way, this is a, a personal, unalterable nature. Uh, or the circumcision is a personal and unalterable um, thing. And that means certainly commitment and loyalty, both of man to God and God to man. That the very nature of a covenant, um, literally the word covenant means uh, something that is, it is cut, like you cut a covenant. And you'll see in other places when God was making this covenant to Abraham, a lot of animals were cut. They cut in half a bunch of animals. And if you remember, um, Abraham was put to sleep and God walked between these cut animals. And the idea of that kind of way of making a covenant is to say, what happened to these animals? If I do not keep my end of the bargain, may it happen to me. May I be split in half. May my life be forfeit. So the idea to cut a covenant is to uh, say that this is something where uh, if I don't do this, may there be judgment. May my very life be on the line. Well, here the idea is uh, seems to be that um, you all have a stake in this. <laughs> Going to avoid puns, okay? Uh, <laughs> you, you all have a stake in this. Like you all have a participation in this. You all have shed blood for this. You all have been cut in order to demonstrate your part of this covenant. And so this is a personal, unalterable sign of a promise given to God or given by God to man and also that a, a man is giving to God, I will do these things. And historical evidence, it does point to um, actually the Egyptians have the earliest sort of records of circumcision rites, both in descriptions and in like um, and in reliefs, okay? And it may or may not be the kind of circumcision that the Jewish people practice, because in a way, you, you, it, would kind of, um, it would kind of make it not as clear a sign if the Egyptians also practice circumcision, right? Because if after they come out of Egypt, well, all the Egyptians do this to their, their males anyway, so um, there's not really any way to know for sure but it does seem like the Egyptians practice something of it, but they might not have really done complete circumcisions like the Jewish people practice. Uh, and historical records do favor this early practice of circumcision by Jewish people. So <laughs> the records do show this. All right, now, can it get more awkward? Yes. Despite circumcision being a sign of the covenant, this entire generation of men in Joshua 5, it says that were born during the wandering in the wilderness, they were not circumcised. I mean, Abraham was told eighth day, circumcision. Moses actually was, was uh, reiterated all the things of the Abrahamic covenant as well. And yet those who wandered in the wilderness who were born while they were in the wilderness had not been circumcised. So uh, what had happened was after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, all those men were circumcised. Um, they, we know they were circumcised because in order to participate in Passover, only those who had been um, circumcised were able to participate in Passover. So for sure, they were all circumcised when they went out into the wilderness, um, but the Israelites sinned. They went against God. You could say in a way, um, despite having made a promise, again, in their own blood, in their own flesh to God to follow and obey, they didn't do it. And so God, rather than leading them straight to the promised land, he judged them and that entire generation as unqualified to come to the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb. And so he judged them. And the way he accomplished this judgment was to doom them to wander in the desert for 40 years until all of them, except Joshua and Caleb, die. Now, in the meantime, no one who was born at that time, no men, no boys who were born at that time were circumcised according to God's command to Abraham. Um, uh, this is what it means by the, the second time. It's not that you can be circumcised once and then circumcised again, the same person. It's really talking about the second generation that are being circumcised. Um, 
the, the Bible doesn't really say why they did not do this in the wilderness or why they neglected that, and they also neglected Passover. Um, it doesn't sound so much like God is holding their disobedience against them. It sounds like something that it was just sort of understood that um, none of you are to be circumcised at this time. Uh, I mean, that's a little bit of arguments from silence, but it is weird or curious that this entire generation um, no one was circumcised while they were out in the wilderness, and that they also didn't have Passover in that 40 years while they're in the wilderness too. So Yahweh tells Joshua that now is the time where this, um, this uh, covenant uh, sign and symbol is to be um, enacted. So they make flint knives, and all the men are circumcised. Um, at this one place. Why a flint knife? They lived in the Bronze Age, so they could have had sharper tools to use for what is a very delicate kind of operation. <clears throat> now, it could be that flint knives were easier to get, all right, or easier to make um, because the stone is a little bit more abundant than all the things you would need to, um, to, to uh, make bronze knives. But Flint knives might also have just, that's part of the ritual. That's how they did it. We actually only have one other mention of flint knives in the Bible, and it has to do with another circumcision. And it, it's, I think, likely that this is a callback to something that happened in Moses' life that highlights the importance of circumcision. And you will not find a movie, I don't think, I don't think the Ten Commandments went to this, um, but you will likely not find this in any kind of reenacting or reimagining of the Exodus account. Exodus chapter 4, you can turn there if you want. Exodus 3 is the burning bush, right? Moses is um, watching sheep. He's been out of Egypt for 40 years. He was in Egypt 40 years. Um, he's now been in the wilderness for 40 years, living life as basically a shepherd, um, he's married to Zipporah and, uh, and uh, staying with Jethro, his father-in-law, out there in Midian. And he's uh, on this mountain with his flock and the burning bush. Lights up, draws his attention, and, and, and God, in the midst of this bush, tells Moses, I am commissioning you, commissioning you, I am calling you to return to Egypt you are going to be my spokesperson. You are going to lead the people out of Egypt. I've heard their cries. Um, and then what does Moses say? Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm a little slow of speech. My tongue doesn't always work the way I want it. And he kind of um, rejects God on this, right? If you remember. So in Exodus chapter 4, God basically is trying to encourage Moses here. You're going to do basically, you know, you can put it like this. You're basically going to have superpowers. And you're going to be able to, with your words and with these demonstrations, these miraculous signs, you will be able to persuade the Pharaoh. But he still says, I, I, I don't, can't do this. I don't want to do this. Um, this is not... Uh, what I am imagining for my future, that's uh, Exodus chapter 4, 10 and on. And essentially, God just, no, no, sorry, you can't argue with me. You're the guy, you're going to do this, all right? Now, the general tone of this is that he is not super excited to do this work. Um, but, I mean, he's, he's sort of uh, gang pressed into doing it, and so he makes his way back to Egypt with his wife, with his kids. And this is where we get to. We'll start in verse, we'll start in verse 24. All right, Exodus 4, 24. At a lodging place on the way, that is on the way to back to Egypt, Yahweh met him, that is Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. That is, God let Moses alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Then Yahweh has Aaron come out to meet Moses. You know, he's still in Egypt. 
they meet, there's kind of a reunion there, and then you have the rest of um, Exodus and all those things. Now, you, this is only significant if you understand the significance of circumcision, why it's so important. What does it mean that Moses had not circumcised his son? What did that mean about Moses? Right? He was in Egypt, 40 years, raised as a, as a prince, and then uh, he, he basically murders a man who was uh, striking a Hebrew slave. He goes out into the wilderness to escape justice. He meets a woman. They have kids, 40 years out there in the desert. What does it mean that he never had his son circumcised, as was the command of God to Abraham for all the generations? What does that mean? Well, Moses, we seem to get the picture, doesn't necessarily see himself as part of the covenant. I mean, here's Moses, who's the most iconic figures in the Old Testament, and it does not seem like he really believed or saw himself as a part of that community, at least at this point. He will later, of course. So he's not just reluctant when God kind of calls out to him. He very well may have thought, look, you know, like, God, I, I can't be your guy because I'm not even invested in this anymore. I'm kind of okay out here. That's a little bit of reading between the lines, but certainly the fact that God was trying to kill Moses after he just commissioned him for not having circumcised his son tells you that the circumcision was indeed very important as an expression of faith, that if Moses really believed the the covenant-keeping God was calling him to do this task, he should have, as soon as he got back to his family, said, you know, I, you know, I was wrong. I, I'm still part of this covenant. God just called me. We need to circumcise my son. Now, understand that the son, Gershom, um, was probably an adult <laughs> at this time. Zipporah, Moses' Midianite wife, remember, she's not, um, she's not a Hebrew. She She's the one that understands what's happening here. Now, it, it could be that she was the one that did not want maybe her son to be circumcised, or it doesn't say explicitly, um, but you kind of get the tone between her and him that this is a, a point of contention, that, you know, you're a bridegroom of blood to me is, you know, look at the blood that you've brought on our house. And uh, I think the idea might be that she maybe didn't want um, the circumcision, um, that, that it was okay by her for Moses not really to participate in this covenant. That could be reading between lines. Maybe she was super spiritual and she understood. The reason this is happening, Moses, is because you have not humbled yourself and, um, and seen that the Lord is calling you and we need to circumcise our son. So it, it's hard to say, Zipporah, whether she uh, was for it or against it, but she knew the significance and the importance of it either way. And so, of course, you, you know, don't circumcise yourself. And uh, Moses, m- what might have arrested them at why they stopped at this lodging place, some commentators say, well, um, the way that the Lord met them and sought to put them to death was by making him seriously ill. And that's why they're at this lodging place. Um, and that Zipporah essentially took the flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and it says, touch Moses' feet with it. Um, the word could also be translated like hit. So it could be just like a, a sign of like disgust. Like there Moses is lying in the bed. He can't do the circumcision himself because perhaps he's too sick. The Lord is trying to kill him. And she just, you know, this, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. You brought this upon our house. Why, uh, why didn't you do this? You know, either she's upset that they had to do it or upset that Moses didn't do it. In any case, this is, yes, one of the most peculiar verses of the Bible. But in the life of Moses, it's one of the most critical because it really does have to do with did Moses trust and believe the promise, the covenant of God? And I would argue that this tells you right here that he doesn't, uh, at this point, he doesn't. Um, and that he's still reluctant. That's a whole other thing. We got into that when we talked about um, Hebrews um, back uh, a couple years ago. But in any case, he was so not invested in the covenant of God 
that God was going to kill him for it. We just have to understand that. And the fact that as soon as, you know, the, the, he circumcised or the, the son was circumcised, everything goes back on track. It tells you that God takes seriously circumcision. So, in a way, you can see a similarity here that for Moses to be prepared to do the works of God, he needed his household to be spiritually prepared, which meant that his son needed to be circumcised. Just like as they are uh, there on the other side of the Jordan, the side with all the Amorites and Canaanites and so on on it, um, that they're about to go in and conquer the promised land, they needed also to have the sign of the covenant on them. Now, an eight-day-old baby. An eight-day-old baby will not remember being circumcised. But as is the case of Gershom, Moses' son, and many of those men in Joshua's day, they were going to be circumcised as adults. And so it was definitely a more deliberate act and one that would be um, a painful reminder, frankly, of God's promise and God's loyalty and also their own loyalty and trust in God's promise. So it was definitely a personal spiritual commitment that these men were making to the plans and purposes of God. But as is the case with lots of law-based views of personal faith and religion, something even like circumcision could just become another item on a list of spiritual duties and not really a symbol of true faith. And God knew that. God knew that even doing something kind of as like drastic a symbol of his covenant as circumcision could be something that they could ignore. Something that that would stop to register as a symbol of anything important at all. And so in Deuteronomy, remember in Deuteronomy just before Joshua, Moses is giving the law again. He's got to give it again because this whole generation that heard his spiel at Mount Sinai, they all died. And so they're about to enter in with a new generation, the sons and daughters of those who perished in the wilderness. They're on the cusp of entering the promised land. Moses gives the law again. Deutero means two. Namas means law. Deuteronomy means the second law, the second giving of the law. It's the same law just being given a second time. Notice what Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, Yahweh your God belong, uh, behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, Yet Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them and above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For Yahweh your God is God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who's not partial and takes no Bribe, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear Yahweh your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So, You see here that Moses, he understands, doesn't he? He was one who forsook circumcision as the sign and symbol of the covenant. But he knows he is not allowed. He knows at this point he himself is not allowed into the promised land because he also, along with that adulterous generation in the wilderness also sinned against God. So he doesn't even get to go into the promised land either. Just Joshua and Caleb. So he knows more than anyone. It doesn't matter if you are circumcised, if you don't love God, fear God, serve God, if you don't understand who he is and have a right relationship with him, 
It doesn't matter if you're circumcised in your flesh. You need to be circumcised in your heart. And of course, Moses saying this is also God saying this. God does not need a hill of foreskins for someone to prove their loyalty to him. It's not too crass to say that. God never desired the blood of bulls and goats when it comes to our repentance. And God doesn't need or desire foreskins and rituals and flint knives. Of course, this comes up in the New Testament a lot. You think, yeah, I, I get it, God. I get why you, it's your heart that needs to be cut up. You know, it's your heart that needs to be sensitive and not hardened to the things of God. <clears throat> Doesn't have to do with the, the, the flesh at all. But this comes up so many times in the New Testament, despite such clear words here in Deuteronomy. Circumcision was still, at the time of Jesus, so associated with being part of God's plan and purpose that even the Jewish converts to Christianity, which was, of course, all the early converts to Christianity were Jewish, they very quickly, very early in the church's history, started to add circumcision to the gospel. Now, of all things, you know, like here's this pure gospel that says Jesus Christ had to die, Son of God, Son of Man, had to die for your sins. That in him there's no other way to be saved. That the Israelites, they screwed it up over and over again. That's why we needed this new covenant. And within the book of Acts, you know, the Acts is the very earliest days of church history. By Acts chapter 15, already you have an argument and a discussion and a debate about circumcision. In Acts chapter um, 15, well, we won't read the whole thing. Um, we won't read the whole thing. But they, they get a council together. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, there's, they're reporting that some people from Judea, that is the, par, the, the part of Israel that has Jerusalem. Remember, the more holy Jews were in, in Judea. He had already some people saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, what, how do you know they're already immediately wrong? Well, Deuteronomy 10, Moses said, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. We already know that the, 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 the custom of Moses, Moses knew. And if you look at the whole Old Testament, every person who did anything wrong, any Jew that did anything wrong that screwed up God's, you can't screw up God's plan, but screwed up the nation, they were all circumcised, kings and judges and so on. So circumcision clearly did not make you any more faithful to God. And yet already, right there, so quickly, you have people adding circumcision to the gospel. It's one of the first things that was ever added to the gospel. That pure message that Jesus alone saves, they quickly added this work. And then, I like the next phrase. Um, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And uh, like a good conspiracy, it goes all the way to the top. Like they had to talk to Peter. You know, Peter, was almost persuaded by this. Paul writes about this in the book of Galatians that he, um, that, that Peter himself was tempted to concede on this issue. And so Paul had to confront him to his face. So the early church, they discussed and debated circumcision. It, it, it's not something that should be, um, you know, so awkward or so outside of our discussions as Christians when it was one of the very first and earliest debates of the church. But clearly, um, well, what's ironic, I'll just say this as a quick aside, in Acts 16, right after saying that, no, circumcision is not a requirement, nor is any of the Mosaic or Pharisaical laws, um, you know what Paul has Timothy do? He gets circumcised, because Paul or Timothy had a, uh, had a Greek father and he'd never been circumcised but because Paul wanted to bring Timothy into synagogues and the synagogues wouldn't let you in unless you're circumcised Timothy uh, became circumcised but understand that it was not for a religious or spiritual 
reason for Timothy, like as if it would do anything to draw him closer to the Lord. For Timothy and Paul, it was strictly for the purpose of serving the gospel. Now, that is, you know, again, as an adult person getting circumcised, that was something that, that Timothy was willing to endure for the sake of the lost, for the sake of not stumbling Jewish people, for the sake of gaining access into the synagogues and preach the gospel, Timothy was willing to do that. But Titus, who was a kind of similar situation to Timothy, Paul didn't have Titus be circumcised. So, again, it was not anything to do with anything spiritual at all. And that would have been very controversial. I say that right now, and maybe you don't bat an eye at it, but understand then there's a serious issue about the nature of circumcision, so much so that Paul would pen an entire letter Almost the entire book of Galatians is addressing that issue and by extension the issue of legalism in the churches. He would go on to say that if anyone preached, this is Galatians 5, um, 12, if anyone preached circumcision as a necessary requirement to believing the gospel, they should emasculate themselves. They should cut themselves off from the people of God if they add to it. Um, And the reason why, and this is the most important thing, the reason that Paul had such um, a a standoffishness to circumcision is that any kind of legalism, if you add anything to the gospel, you take away from the glory of Christ. Galatians 6, 11 through 15. This was the greatest concern of all from from, uh, Paul, and this is what we said this morning as well. The answer is, the conclusion is the glory of God. And so to add to the gospel takes away from the glory of God. Galatians 6, 11 through 15. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So Paul there is making very clear, circumcised, uncircumcised, you add anything to the gospel, all it does is make you boast. And if you boast in your salvation, you boast in your response to the gospel, you take away necessarily from the boasting in the cross, the glory of what Jesus Christ did when he paid the price for sin without our need to add anything to that. Over and over again, we actually see this, that that Jeremiah, the prophet, commanded the Jews, and this is hundreds of years after Abraham and Moses, that Jeremiah speaking to the exiles, those who were held captive by Babylon, to those Israelites, he said, you need to circumcise your hearts. Your hearts need to be right before God. It's not about the flesh. There must be this spiritual readiness that comes with the right relationship with God, not on the basis of the flesh and things that we do in the flesh, but in a right relationship to God through Christ. Uh, I know, in a way, the the things that we see in Joshua 5, um, they are physical truths that point to spiritual realities. I don't want to diminish the sacrifice that all these men made in order to say, you know, they are loyal to the Lord. Um, But uh, it only mattered if they were circumcised and they had faith in God because the flesh profits nothing. And the idea that we've seen throughout Joshua is that the people's heart was there, that this group's circumcision only mattered because it was accompanied by faith. And we know that because God's final word to them after they are healed, 
Yahweh said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And they called that place Gilgal, which means, uh, sounds like the Hebrew word for roll. In other words, because they did this by faith, the, um, and it, the reason they call it the reproach of Egypt, what he's really talking about is how the Israelites went back to, in their hearts, to Egypt. Remember when they made the golden calf and all that? He's calling Israel like Egypt in a way, that they engaged in the sins of Egypt, the Israelites did, but in their act of faith, in getting circumcised, God was willing to roll away that reproach. There's an there's a analogy to baptism here because the way that the covenant is um, affirmed in the new covenant is not through circumcision, but it's through baptism. But even Peter would say, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, meaning not you being physically placed in the water, which you should do. I mean, the Jewish people, they should have gotten circumcised, but it only matters if it's accompanied by faith. And so baptism in the same way, it only matters if it's accompanied with faith, the significance of it. The water doesn't save you. The lack of a foreskin doesn't save anybody. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's pagan. It's only the faith that comes through belief in Christ. And so just to close with how do you get a circumcised heart. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes, Colossians 2, verse 11. In Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ In other words, turning away from your sin, repentance. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words... To have a circumcised heart, you must believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins. And that being buried with him in baptism, again, doesn't mean the literal waters, but that you would, uh, uh, that in putting your faith in Jesus, it is like you're being covered with him completely. Just as the waters cover you completely in baptism, so when you put your faith in him, you're covered completely with Christ. The way to have a circumcised heart in the new covenant is to believe Jesus and turn away from your sins. And if you have not done that yet, there's nothing you could do. There's no ritual you can perform. There's no sacrifice you can give, whether whether foreskin or forearm, that can make you right with God. It is impossible to please God in our flesh. And I would, I would have to tell you, if you're not a Christian, that there's nothing you can do to try and win or earn that favor back from the God that we have shunned through our sin. Rather, it is to look to what Jesus Christ did in fulfilling all the works of God in his life, death, and resurrection, putting your faith in him, trusting that in all that he did, he did for us to make us right with God, forgiving our sins. If you are a Christian this evening, um, I hope that the subject of circumcision is one that maybe you have a little bit more understanding about and why it's significant. And be thankful. Be thankful that circumcision or not, good works or not, any good work, does not make you right with God. It is Christ himself who's done it all. So be thankful that you don't have to do that. (laughs) <laughs> in order to be right with him, uh, maybe a little bit more practical for, uh, for the men in the room, but be thankful that it applies to all works, that none of them make you right before God. What a joy and blessing it is to say, God, on the basis of what you have done alone, can we be made right with you? And, and, and be thankful for that uh, and love the Lord for that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in your love and mercy, uh, you demonstrated over and over again. We could create all the rituals we want. We could try to sacrifice everything. But if it is apart from faith in you, and what your son has done, and what your spirit did, we are lost. We, are, we fall short. 
And we cannot be made right with you. We thank you that, God, you did it all. You must have. How could any one of us ever say that we, we, we clawed our way to the gates of heaven and did something good enough that an eternal God would pat us on the head and say, well done. No, it is only on the basis of Jesus Christ that we would ever enjoy a taste of, of heaven and your shared glory with us. So thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to enjoy all the blessings you've given us, food and fellowship and, and health. We pray for those who are sick uh, on vacation. I know many are traveling and, and everything in between. That you likewise bless them. We miss them. Pray for their safe return. Uh, but we thank you for this moment tonight that we get to share together. May you bless it. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.